0: Good morning. Uh, with me today is Dr. Kyle Beesing. Uh, Dr. Beesing is Associate Professor of Mathematics here at Kentucky Wesleyan College. Dr. Beesing, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Happy to. Appreciate your time. Um, well, let's get started with uh, kind of an overview, a background of who you are, where you came from, the courses you teach. Sure. So uh, I'm a relative
1: native to the area. I grew up in um, the Evansville area uh, and... Um, whenever it was time to you know to have a real job you know not just a being graduate school we wanted to move back to the area and when Kentucky Wesleyan opened up it was um, it was a great fit because I had a very like personal rea- uh, relationship with my faculty and undergrad and that really shaped my desire of what I wanted to do uh, as a faculty member um, and so whenever I visited Wesleyan and saw the relationships that faculty had with students, um, that was a big draw to me. So I've been here since 2015. Um, and since 2016, I've been the program coordinator for mathematics and math is kind of a, a fun anomaly in the sciences in that we have specially, specialty topics that we study, but in teaching undergrad courses were generalist. And so in chemistry, if you're an organic chemist, you just teach organic chemistry. If you're a botanist in biology, that's generally what you teach. Uh, But in mathematics, we can teach anything. Um, And so uh, that's fun for me because each time new courses come around, uh, the other math professors and I can figure out what we want to teach that time and we can teach that. So we always have new courses that we're teaching to stay fresh and to stay up to date in all the different areas of mathematics and so it's nice to not be siloed
0: into only certain courses. Mm-hmm. So the uh, you know obviously the mathematics major is uh, you know something a you know, long-standing here at the college um, I think since its uh, since its inception back in the 19th century um, and has gone through many revisions over that time as you can imagine. Um, talk about some of the things that you've put into into practice during your time here, curricular revisions and, you know, other updates and and why you put those things into practice. Sure. So when, when
1: I got here, um, based on the the skills of the faculty that were here, the mathematics program was really designed to train uh, future high school math teachers. And it did a fantastic job of doing that but there weren't really students that were interested in pursuing different avenues with math. Mm. Um, And so we went through a big curriculum revision in 2017 to where we asked, how do we retain all of the great material that we have to train future math teachers, but also provide what students need to go into industry or go into graduate school um, and kind of open up the opportunities that we have for students and so with that we did a big curriculum redesign added some new courses changed some different elective pathways um, to provide more um, flexibility in the major Um, and so we we've moved into having uh, a majority of our students are now non-education majors. We're trying to balance that back out the other way, but we've seen a variety of students who have gone to graduate school, who've gone into business, and who have gone into education. Um, And so we're seeing that more diverse student population than we did when I got here. The other big change that we've done is we have moved basically the entirety of our lower division courses and some of our upper division courses to open access materials. Mm. So we use textbooks that are freely available online. Our homework solution that we use for online homework is open source and free to students in the college. Um, And so we've really pushed hard to eliminate one of those barriers of entry for students for these courses where they show up on the first day and they have all the materials that they need to no cost to them um, right off the bat uh, so that they can be fully prepared to be successful on day one. Mm. Um, and that has been a, a major undertaking that we've done over the past several years.
0: Yeah, So a lot of things working at the same time, uh, but <coughs> towards those similar ends of this kind of broad uh, sort of preparation for, for various things. Cause you talk about, uh, how the individual courses fit within the curriculum to prepare students for industry and for you know jobs in say actuarial science for instance or uh, you know in statistics broadly speaking,
1: right? So we have <clears throat> we have a probability and statistics sequence. Um, the probability class is required of all of our majors, mm-hmm. but if there's an interest in going into any kind of analysis field or data. Uh, Uh, evaluation, then they can take an additional statistics class. Uh, We've offered a special topics class in preparing for one of the actuarial exams. We have a student who's graduating this semester uh, who's going into actuarial work, which is becoming a bigger, bigger uh, Mm -hmm. field for students to enter. Um, And so out of our upper level classes. They have some freedom to be, do I want to be more stats heavy? Do I want to be more analytical? Or do I want to prepare for grad school by taking more uh, applied uh, classes? Mm -hmm. Well, not applied, but more uh, applied math courses, like whether it's partial differential equations or a pure math class like topology. Um, These are classes that grad schools are starting to expect undergrads to have that they didn't necessarily have in the past so whenever i went to grad school i never had a topology class um, and they kind of expected that i had Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was one of the big struggles that i have and my undergrad institution has since added that class to the undergrad curriculum and so part of it was adding that to make sure that we were prepared for students who want to go that route Mm -hmm. Um, and so a lot of it has been just making sure that we have the offerings on the books to when students say I want to do this with math we're ready to provide them with what they need to be successful
0: and I, I think this is an interesting point and one that you know I think uh, you know people outside of higher education aren't necessarily familiar with is that the sort of curricular adaptation process that, that takes place regularly you know to keep up with uh, with current trends and demands in the in the workforce uh, in industry you know with, with graduate, school in particular. So how do you stay informed, number one, uh, on recent and uh, emerging developments? And then what kind of things are you you looking at in the future? And how can you adapt the curriculum even further to to keep pace? Sure.
1: So whenever you're looking at curriculum changes, there's a macro level and there's a micro level. So at the macro level, you're looking at different professional organizations that put out updates and reports on what do they believe is the appropriate content to be in a math major? Um, And that is shifting based on where research is going, where jobs are going, Um, mathematical biology, uh, numerical chemistry, uh, numerical physics. These are things that weren't as big, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that are now becoming hot areas of research. And there's different classes that you need to be prepared for those. Mm Um, than you would for other fields. And so there's some macro changes that happen about what courses you offer, but then there's also micro changes based on within each course, how are we teaching the material? And so what you saw with a lot of parents who are frustrated with common core changes to the K through 12 curriculum were changes to deal with the fact that whenever we were going to school, one of the things that I always heard in my math classes were, well, you're not always gonna have a calculator with you, right? So you have to be good at doing Mm -hmm. arithmetic. Mm -hmm. Well, we we now always have calculators with us. They're in our pockets, right? Mm -hmm. We have a a computer more powerful than what the space shuttle in our pockets. And so we don't need to know how to be fast with computations anymore Mm. because we can do that on a calculator. But what we do need to know is what do we plug into that calculator? Mm. We have to have an understanding of what addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division mean so we know what to put in the calculator. That's why our generation struggled so much with word problems Mm -hmm. was because we were taught computation, Mm -hmm. not conceptual understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're even seeing that in like calculus. There's software out there that's freely available that can do the computations involved in calculus now. And so there's discussions going on about, do we need to teach our students to do these calculations the Mm. same way we used to, or do we need to be focusing more on conceptually, what are we doing here Mm. to where Mm. we empower students to be able to convert real world problems that they see into the right math. Mm. And then we can give the Mm. math to the software, right? Mm. That's still a very valid skill, that still requires an understanding of the material, but not in the exact same way. So do we adjust how we teach that material to focus more on calculations? Or do we focus on how to set up different models and how to model the real world using these ideas?
0: Well, and so that, you know, there's an interesting kind of shift (laughs) in how we, you know, the sort of uh, machine learning, big data set kind of shift and the reticence of, you know people to uh you know give themselves completely over to the black box of you know you know good information in and you expect to be able to, to use what comes out um and there is you know there is uh you know a growing dependence on those big data sets and that um you know the um and so the 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 conception the overall sort of that the what you're trying to do with math it makes sense and that leads me to uh, another question about sort of uh, the creative impulse in mathematics and something that I think is one of the, the sort of the, the biggest differentiator between uh, secondary mathematics education and, and college and, and, and post-college uh, mathematical um, education which is that the, the creativity and the exploration um, could you talk a little bit about about that for, for people that don't necessarily equate mathematics with creativity. Sure. Uh,
1: I mean, I didn't associate mathematics with creativity until college Um, because up through, um, you know, your high school education and even for most people's college math career, it's still very black and white. It's still very, here's a problem. There's one right answer and everybody should get the same answer. Once you get past that, those kind of computational courses, you start to discover the world of You know, higher mathematics is about logic and understanding and conclusions that follow from a set of given assumptions. And so whenever you talk about mathematical proofs, that's, you know, that side of mathematics is about we have a logical framework that we operate in and we use that to say this is how we know these things are true and these things are not true. Now, does that mean that I can play fast and loose with some famous theorems, like that I can just change Pythagoras, Pythagorean theorem if that's not what I want it to say? No, but if you look at the Pythagorean theorem and you Google like proof of the Pythagorean theorem, there's hundreds of different proofs for the Pythagorean theorem. I believe that the only president that we had who published a proof was a proof for the Pythagorean theorem, but I'm blanking on which president it is, but I believe that that's that's accurate. But regardless, what you can see is that if something is true, there's more than one way to arrive at that truth. Mm. And whenever you look at how people arrive to that truth or the way that they try to convince you of that truth— there are individual voices. There's individual styles. There's personality in the way that you get about, you go about doing that. That isn't there whenever you're just writing line after line of calculations. Whenever you're in high school. Um, and so, one of the things that we spend a lot, a lot of time talking to our students at these upper level areas is, I don't need you to prove to me that you understand something. I know that you understand it. Your job as a mathematician is to find a way to effectively take what you see in your head and put it in someone else's head. Mm. If you know that something is true, that doesn't do anything unless you can convince other people that it's also true. Mm. And so you move from this idea of writing to show my teacher that I understand to writing to share understanding with people Mm. who don't. And you're writing to increase their knowledge instead of verifying that you also have the knowledge that they have. And it's a struggle for some of our students to deal with because they're they're used to skipping steps. They're used to just being like, I'm just showing you that I know the pathway. And it's you have to show the whole thing because people may not make that same jump that you do. Mm -hmm. They may not see it the same way you do. You have to be very clear and very descriptive and very precise in the way
0: that you're doing this, but there are a lot of avenues that you can take to do that. And this is clearly an evolution in sort of mathematics uh, uh, as a pedagogy, correct? I mean, this is a, a recent evolution. Well, this idea
1: of... Of, having, of how we write proofs is, is the same as it's been forever. But the way that, that we're empowering students mm-hmm. to do on their own right. through active learning, through student-led design of courses, that's a relatively modern adjustment in how we're teaching classes. Um, there's a big push with active learning and inquiry-based learning to say students are going to learn math by doing math, so let's put them in the front. Let's put them in the driver's seat and have them do the work and present the work to each other to get used to this idea of convincing others of their ideas. Mm. And as a faculty member, it's great because I'm really there as a moderator. Mm. I'm really there to offer suggestions and guidance and clarification, but I get to just see where the students want to go. And that means that the same class with the same things that they're supposed to do can look very different mm. from year to year, and it mm. keeps my job fun and entertaining. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to be on all the time you you right. don't get you don't get to prep for the questions that are going right. to get asked ahead of time. Right. Uh, so you may not know the answer, and so it's also good for students to to see their professors say, "You know
0: what? I don't know." It's a higher order understanding. Yeah, that the student I'm gonna has to I'm gonna
1: go think about it. Right tonight and I'll I'll come back to you on our next class and we'll talk about it again. And they get to see that real, Mm. um, the real process Mm. of creating and understanding new information instead of thinking of their professor as this bastion of knowledge who never has questions about anything.
0: That's a reorientation for these students, Mm -hmm. right? As they're coming from a, you know, most secondary mathematics environments, um, you know, uh, staying true to a you know chapters in a book and moving through sort of mechanically um, And then when they get to, to college to re-understand to, to understand the, the, the creative sort of impulse um, I have to almost in the same breath talk about uh you know, I ask you to talk about math phobia um, Which is something I think keeps a lot of students out of math to begin with and so uh, They never get to this point where they can you know sort of explore their their creative impulses and, and see math as a conduit to that. So you know, what what's the easiest and best way for us as educators to, you know, guide students past their their phobias, their hangups about math, mathematics education?
1: Well, one of the things that I always do in a lot of my Gen Ed classes where I'm working with students who this may be their only or their last experience with math is try to frame the learning of math in the same way that we frame the learning of any other skill Mm. we've pigeonholed math as this thing where you can either do it or you can't and it's not up to you about which category you fall into and just like with anything else there are people who are going to do it easier or quicker right if you know i imagine that if LeBron James and I started to learn basketball at the same time. He's going to get better at it than I am at a faster rate. But does that mean that I can't learn Mm -hmm. and enjoy the game of basketball? Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. And so I talk to students about, think about how you've learned any skill that you have, whether you're a musician or an athlete. And think about the idea of, did you listen to someone explain how to play your instrument or play your sport, and then you watched some people play that instrument or... play that sport and then go home be like well i know how to play this instrument now or i'm ready to to start for the pro team in my in my state no like you sat down and you had to practice Mm. right and that's the same thing with math right you don't learn math by listening to someone talk and watching them do it and think that you're supposed to be able to do it Mm. you have to practice and so uh, a lot of times I, I like to use the, nac- the acronym in class of math where it says mistakes allow thinking to happen, mm. right? That whenever we get something wrong, we shouldn't internalize that as a negative. We'd be like, oh, this is a chance for me to figure out what I need to do next time. Mm. And so the department has been uh, big on this idea of productive or effective struggle, um, a lot of us are having students write at the end of the semester and giving credit for their explanation of how I pro- productively struggled in this class. What was a topic that I didn't get right away, and, and, but I eventually got it. And what did you do to move between those two, to help them explore the idea that I was able to do this, I just had to practice. I just had to do um, the same thing you know over and over again that I do with any other skill that I want to acquire. And so we we hope to give students that impression that yeah I know you may have had some bad experiences in the past and I know that you feel like you aren't good at this but it doesn't have to be that way. And just this year we added a new course called Discovering Mathematics which is a gen ed course for students who don't need any other math. And instead of spending a whole semester building on one topic that builds on another and builds on another and it's very constructive it's a set of modules about just different Mm. interesting ideas Mm. that don't require a lot of prior knowledge that Mm. they can just investigate Mm. and so uh dr christina starkey who's new to kwc uh, has been building this course out this year and the feedback that she is getting from students has been fantastic. The very first module that they do is on cryptography and they write secret codes and decode secret codes and they get a a lot of, it's a lot of fun. And then they talk about, well, what's the underlying math here, right? Mm. They don't get into all the details, Mm. but you know, we can look at these fun ideas from a mathematical viewpoint without it being scary. And so, at least for this last impression of math, we leave them with a good taste in their mouth. And it's right. not that same bitter right. medicine that they've right. gotten for 12 years.
0: Well, and, and for decades now, we've had this debate over algebra as part of the general education, not necessarily here, but in higher education about algebra being, you know, one of these foundational courses. What's your opinion of algebra as a sort of prerequisite to, you know, higher you know, courses in any major? Well, I
1: mean, so clearly there are majors that you have to have it. Right. You have to have a foundation in algebra if you want to go to calculus. Mm. And if calculus is something that is required for your discipline, then you have to have that. Mm. Necessarily, does every major need you to understand how algebra works? Maybe not. Right. And so that's why we're trying to also adopt these variety of gen ed courses and saying, like, look, there are still going to be students who have to develop these skills because the work that they're going to do later requires that knowledge right but for other students are we doing them a service by teaching them a rigid framework of a very specific set of mathematical skills or do we do them a more of a service by teaching them mathematical curiosity Mm. and mathematical Mm. exploration Mm. that they can apply to hobbies or interests or just their day-to-day lives and evaluating the numbers that they see in the news and on the media for themselves and to be able to think critically. I would argue that there are students that would benefit from that way more than learning more about, you know, rational functions and logarithms.
0: Right, which gets back to the sort of origins of mathematics instruction, at least in this country. It's very practical in its orientation. And, you know, when it is sort of fully developed in the 19th century, it's about discipline, kind of disciplining your mind to follow sort of order and procedure and, and, really not at all what you're suggesting here, which is kind of free-flowing, you know, creative in its expression and a, as a creative outlet for students as well, which is something different entirely. So, uh, I have to ask your opinion of mastery grading, um, which is, you know, I think gaining some traction nationwide and people are interested in because of its implications. What's your understanding of mastery grading and is there some... Uh, it, you know, is it is, a, is there a possibility of uh, sort of implementing that in the curriculum here? So mastery grading
1: uh, falls under an umbrella that is starting to just become known as alternative grading. It contains things like specifications grading, mastery grading, and some other different specific words for how it's done. Um, and there is already a foothold for this at KWC. There are... Faculty in the math and science division who are either looking at this or already implementing this in some classes. And what it boils down to is you start off by throwing a huge curveball to the students and tell them that you're no longer going to be offering partial credit. That assignments are either graded as it's mastered or it's not. Um, and that's terrifying at the onset. But What it means is, is you have a list of things that you want students to master or or specifications that you want them to reach. And how they do in the course uh, is determined by how many of those they achieve, not necessarily their level at all of them. Mm. And this originated out of a couple of problems that faculty saw in the way that we traditionally grade. Traditionally, grading sets up a conflict between the instructor and the student, right? The student is trying to earn points. The instructor is trying to take points away. It also really muddies our ability to understand what students know. Because a student could get a C or a B in the class by not mastering anything, but partially mastering a bunch of things you know, getting that C or that B through partial credit alone. It also could be that they've completely mastered some aspect of the course and really haven't mastered other things. And we can't tell those students apart from that grade. What mastery grading does, or any of these alternative gradings, it says, look, you can't skate by on partial credit anymore. You don't have to turn in all the work. You don't have to do all the assignments, but what you do have to do is do those well. And these all are based on the idea of being able to do revisions. Um, So you turn it in and I say, look, you know, you're on the right track, but you're not there yet. Here's what you want to do. Turn it back in again after you make the fixes and you could still earn mastery for that. And this sets up a very different dynamic between the faculty and the students, where the students and the faculty are on the same side as trying to push students up this ladder towards higher grades by mastering more and more things. It also really changes the dynamic of feedback that faculty give. Right now, a lot of students view feedback as a justification for taking points away. And so if I see that I missed two points, I'm like, oh, well, would they take the two points away. Well, there's some feedback. Okay, so there's a reason why they took those two points away. There's no reason for them to internalize what mistake they made or to go back and try to rectify it because the assignment's submitted and returned. But mm-hmm. if you're doing revisions, I'm not taking points away. I'm just saying, hey, you might want to do this instead or you should look at this. And then students have a reason to internalize that feedback and to make corrections, and to practice the skill until they develop mastery. And so what you see is you see courses that are designed where if you master this many of the objectives, that's a C, this many is a B, and this many is an A. And so if you go into the course saying, I only need a C in here. You know, this isn't required for my major. I just need to get a C. Fine. But you don't have to do all of the work but you're gonna do the core competencies of this class and you're going to do them well. Mm. And so you know when that student leaves exactly what they can and cannot do out of the course because the only way they get credit for any of those competencies is to do it well. And it, it also models what's gonna be expected of them outside of the classroom, right? Your employer is not going to expect you to do partial work for whatever you're doing for them right they want you to be able to complete the tasks that they give them and complete them well right and maybe you do it the first time and they send you back with well we want this instead so go back and redo it right this more accurately models what they're going to be expected um, and so it just it seems like it's a, a great benefit for both the faculty in understanding what their students know as well as students you know getting the skills that they really need It does apparently require a huge commitment in time from faculty to get started with this, which is why I'm I'm still in the preparation stages for applying it it to some of my courses, but I have it in the works for some. And I
0: do wonder about that. Uh, I wonder about the time commitment on behalf of faculty, obviously. You know, you're know, you building on one of these core critical thinking precepts, intellectual self-reliance of students as they're working through problems and they're working to truly understand before they can move on and, and exhibit that understanding. Um, but you look at colleges, uh, Reed, Brown, Evergreen State and a number of others that have gone to, a uh, new college in Florida that have gone to a, um, you know, your transcript uh, may or may not include letter grades right, um, at, say, Reed, for instance, uh, my understanding is that you're not, um, you are assessed a letter grade, but you don't have access to that letter grade. It's held sort of secret from you, right? Um, or, you know, other, other institutions, you have a, uh, an opportunity to, to go with a standard grading system or a, you know, satisfactory, not satisfactory process, or uh, Evergreen State's model is these, you know, pre- and post-course assessments that are completed um, you know, in conjunction with a student, really, what are, what are my expectations and have you met those expectations? Have you, you know, I, you know have you uh, worked well with your peers? Um, uh, have you demonstrated mastery or understanding or progress to understanding? Th- those are sort of revolutionary leaps. Um, you know, I, I, Evergreen State's been doing this since the early 70s, I believe. But um, is there a place for, for that approach um, here at Kentucky Wesleyan? so
1: one of the things that i've always been impressed with here is the openness of the administration and the other faculty to try something new Um, you know and any kind of progress probably is going to be made incrementally um, and there may be situations where those kind of grading systems work better than others but i think anything that removes the idea of gaming the system mm. from the the classroom environment is beneficial. So right now, we we train students to be really good problem solvers. But the problem that they're solving is how do I get the grade that I That's want for point. the least amount of work, yeah, right. right? So what if we train them instead to just enjoy the learning process mm. Mm. And, and make it not so combative and find a way for us to assign some kind of measure of their understanding of the material without turning it into a contest of wills or, you know, just a way of ex- how do I
0: skate by? Ex- exhibiting control, which right. is you could read into the grading system or performance evaluations in general, right? Is a yeah. way of exhibiting control. And this is straight out of Alfie Cohen's punished by rewards. Um, which you know uh, argues against these sort of formal or you know generally accepted sort of performance metrics that you're applying to, to people. What what are the expectations of those? And grading falls right into that. Um, before we go, I want to talk a little bit about um, you know what you've done with instructional technology. You talked a little bit about um, uh, online educational resources, um, but you've you've done great work here with uh, lightboard technology, which I was not familiar with um, before I came to. Kentucky Wesleyan College. I think, this is, I think this is interesting and exciting. And uh, so I, I wanna get your thoughts on, on what we're currently doing and what you see down the road in terms of you know, maybe adaptive learning, um, uh, you know, other sort of a more advanced use of materials that are just fully open access.
1: Yeah, I think especially in math, there's a big push to make as much stuff available for free as we can. And I'm hoping and I'm seeing more disciplines kind of adopting that. And I, I hope that that's kind of where the future goes. Um, and so with the case of the lightboard board here, um, if you're not familiar, uh, you know, the uh, light board allows you to make better online videos for students to where you get to face the camera instead of recording someone at a board. Um, and a lot of those are really cost prohibitive for schools of our size. And so myself and another faculty member we developed, um, a model for, for building one on, on the cheap. Uh, and, uh, we were able to do that with a budget that is easily accessible for these small schools. And I've been to multiple conferences and, mm. and presented this kind of strategy, um, to a lot of interest because it, it makes producing out of the classroom material much easier. And so, uh, the class that I piloted on was our general education probability and statistics class. And it allowed me to flip the classroom. Uh, there's lots of different varieties for what that means, but it gave me a chance to record introductory lectures or lessons that are just 10, seven to 10 minutes for each of my classes. And it gives you a chance to offload the tedious definitions and basic ideas for students to do before they come to class. And what it does is it opens up class time for, Discussion, for questions, for um, interactive activities. Um, and I've seen a lot of enjoyment from that. And I think it's a proof of concept for what we can do to be able to quickly and efficiently generate materials that can be posted online, either for our students or for just the community mm-hmm. in general, to mm-hmm. just show that, you know, Wesleyan is here for the community, and we want to just make the community that we're in better. Mm -hmm. And if you want to go further than that, then come to campus. Right. And, you know, interact with, you know, other students and and go in depth in these classes. But we're not trying to be an ivory tower that is separate from our surroundings. And I think the more that we can move in that direction uh, to just put out content, Mm. to empower, you know, faculty to do what they're doing already in great ways. To do that in more mediums and to, to get a bigger reach is fantastic. And um, I think you know things like putting out podcasts and putting out these videos just enable that that
0: mission, right? And you have to say something about. Uh, and we're going to link into the descriptions to your uh, your rap videos. Your- <laughs> so how do those come about number one so uh, it's rap video I, i'm oh. still
1: i'm still a one-hit wonder okay uh but so uh i'm typically the kind of faculty member that sacrifices my self-dignity and <laughs> reputation uh for engagement in the classroom okay um and so whenever i was making these videos uh i put a little gag at the beginning of each one just to you know get students to wake up before we start talking about math mm-hmm. And I had this idea that I was going to just write like a couple of lines like I was going to um, like do a rap and then be like, no, I'm not doing this. And then going mm. on with the, the right. video, yeah. um, probably sh- oh, I'm tenured now. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of meetings that day. Right. And so I just had like my notebook with me. Yeah. And from meeting to meeting, I was just kind of sketching like different sure. lyrics yeah. uh, <laughs> and I realized at the end of the day that I had like a whole verse. And so I, uh, I sucked it up and I found some freely available background music on YouTube and and recorded it. And uh, the professor I share a wall with that day was treated to (laughs) a live performance. And, but, you know, every year when, you know, that video comes around in the, in the course, it gets shared around the school um, and I get, you know, people who are interested in in what is going on in this class that
0: wouldn't normally be. Well, and you you know, extending the community of learners, right? I mean, to the you know, obviously the mathematics community in general, but but, uh, Davis County, extending the reach of it. Are there any more videos planned or in progress? I mean,
1: I always have ideas for these things, but right now the the math program is kind of switching gears a little bit, and we're working on putting together a a repertoire of active learning activities and uh, exercises for K through 12 curriculum and the higher ed that we can post as a repository Mm -hmm. um, for anybody to download and and hopefully partner with some of the local schools to to try to make their classrooms more active without having to ask them to develop new ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're currently recruiting students to start building those out. Um, and maybe that'll yield some fun videos, uh,
0: but, uh, you know, and you've been very active in the community. I want to, you know, compliment you for that. Um, obviously as you're out in schools and, you know, promoting mathematics, number one, but, but also overseeing the sort of the mathematics education of, of, uh, secondary teachers out there as well, setting up courses and, and delivering content like this is certainly part of it. So, um, well, uh, that brings us to the conclusion of another episode of the James Cousin Show. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Kyle Beesing, for joining me today. Uh, Kyle, any concluding thoughts or any aphorisms, platitudes? Just, there ain't no Do party you? like a math party, oh, right? God bless <laughs> all right. Thank you all.